3: The following podcast contains graphic content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised.
4: We were just all blown away, devastated. It was shell shock for the entire community. We basically got to the police station and they have explained what happened. Basically said that she was murdered. We try to think like, who, who could this possibly be?
0: There are approximately 250,000 unsolved murders in the United States. Cases where killers continue to roam free while families are still waiting for justice.
4: There was multiple, multiple people involved in the investigation as from, you know, local law enforcement to state police investigators and things like that. So we assumed
3: this shouldn't take long. But nobody had any answers on anything. Vince Merak is one of those grieving family members. And what he's been through is something you wouldn't wish on anyone. His sister was brutally murdered.
0: Making things even worse, the case went cold, not just for years, but for decades. A fact Vince could never understand.
4: I started to really get frustrated because to me, this case was so solvable just because of all the evidence that they had and how things were.
3: Here's what's surprising about the unknown murderer. He wasn't even careful. He took foolish risks. He left DNA behind. And yet, he remained an enigma to law enforcement.
4: Nobody can understand how this happened. I don't think anybody had any answers or ideas. We were like, you know, we're just, we're getting nowhere here.
0: To be fair, authorities threw everything they had at this investigation. They interviewed witnesses. They ran vehicle records. They even had the FBI's famed behavioral science unit do a profile on the suspect. Nothing worked.
4: These are people that are trained professionals who go to school for this kind of thing. And now we're, you know, years into it and we still don't have an answer.
3: How had this individual committed such a disorganized murder while leaving identifying evidence behind and still gotten away with it? The answer lies in a hidden, frightening truth we would uncover while investigating this case. The hardest killer to catch is the one who targets a stranger, kills once, and then never kills again. And here's the shocking part. There are a lot more of these killers out there than anyone ever imagined.
5: There's a whole different type of person out there killing very violently that aren't serial killers.
6: This person was the polar opposite of everything uh, police have been looking for. The fear is there's these one-off offenders hiding in
7: the
3: shadows, living a normal life.
8: Here is somebody who's so well-known, right under everybody's nose.
0: From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Once a Killer. A five part podcast that investigates the mystery of one and done sexual thrill killers who are openly living among us. I'm Alexis Linkletter.
3: And I'm Billy Jensen. Our journey takes us east to the town of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a quiet community located 70 miles west of Philadelphia and 70 miles north of Baltimore. We came to this small town to investigate a big story, one that resonates far beyond the rolling barley fields and winding country roads, which are shared by cars and horse carriages alike. The case that devastated Vince's family occurred here in 1992. The story starts at Roerstown Elementary, a red brick building serving k through sixth grade students. It was December 21st, and students and staff were in celebration mode just before the holiday break.
5: There's no better place to be as an elementary school around the holidays because the kids get so excited.
0: Harry Goodman was the principal of Roarstown Elementary and he always looked forward to this time of year.
5: There would be a holiday concert and all the parents would come and the teachers would get gifts. Yeah, they would give gifts to the students. It was just a neat feeling permeating the whole school. But something was off that Monday morning. It
3: was 8.30 a.m. already, and sixth grade teacher Christy Merak had not yet arrived. She was usually there by 7.45.
0: At 25 years of age, Christy was just beginning her career. She had started as a reading tutor. Then when a first grade teacher went on sabbatical, Christy stepped in. She did so well that the following year, Principal Goodman encouraged her to apply for a sixth grade teaching position.
5: A lot of people said, well, how will she ever make a transition from teaching first grade to sixth? But a good teacher can teach any grade level. And I had confidence that she could do it. And that's when I hired her for sixth grade. How did her students feel about her? Oh, they loved her. She was creative. She was dynamic. She found ways to make each child feel important and successful. She had the whole thing, the whole package.
0: Here's Christy, teaching her sixth grade class, just two months before the incident.
8: What we're going to do today is I'm going to show you a picture. And I'm not going to show it to you yet. And I'm going to ask you to explain to me how you would classify this living thing. It's not going to be going to be that important uh, to see what the animal actually is, because you may know what the animal is, but it's going to be how you would classify
3: it. But on this cold winter morning, that dynamic and reliable teacher was nowhere to be found.
5: This was way before cell phones. I called her apartment about five times. You know, Christy, where are you? Where are, you know? So I was really worried about that. So then I called her mom. And I said... Have you talked to her? And she goes, she was home on Sunday, on the weekend. I thought for sure she had a flat tire.
0: Thinking she may need help, Principal Goodman left school and drove towards Chrissy's town home in East Lampeter, keeping an eye out for her car. But she was nowhere along the route.
5: I pulled up to her apartment and saw her car that was iced over and I knew something was wrong. Something was drastically wrong.
3: Principal Goodman approached Christie's front door and found it open a crack. Then he went inside.
5: What happens then? I'm not comfortable talking about that. It was awful. I would have screaming nightmares for about five years.
0: Nearly three decades later, Harry Goodman is still traumatized by what he saw that morning. He raced to find a neighbor's phone and called 911. Christopher Erb was a patrolman in Lancaster that year. He recalls what first responders found when they arrived.
7: There didn't appear to be any forced entry to the townhouse. They saw that on the floor and actually on the door, there were scuff marks that appeared to be signs of a struggle that happened inside the door there. Our best guess is the initial confrontation or altercation occurred right inside the door. There were also Christmas gifts in bags for some of the faculty and for the students right inside the door.
0: What did they see when they walked inside?
7: As you go into the living room, she was kind of close to a couch and Christmas tree was in the living room. She was laying on her back. She still had her gloves on her hands and she had her winter bomber jacket on over top of a sweater and a pullover shirt. The shirt and sweater was pushed up to her chest and she had nothing on from there down except for her, her socks. So her pants were thrown and underwear were thrown on the living room floor. She had signs of physically being assaulted with either a closed fist or a blunt object. There was a significant amount of blood coming from her facial area. There were bruises all around her neck. It looked to be both from manual strangulation and also a ligature.
0: What was the state of the apartment?
7: Didn't appear to be anything missing from the house. There was a cutting board next to her which we're assuming had to have been in the kitchen at one point. How it got there, we don't know. But it was in the living room right next to her. And actually, it was so close to her, there was blood that dropped on the cutting board.
1: The
0: most critical evidence would provide proof that Christie's attacker was male.
7: Some body fluids that were found on her person and on the floor near her person led us to believe that there was a sexual assault that also occurred in this violent, it was a
3: brutal attack. Christy Murak was confirmed dead and authorities secured the scene. But they were struck by just how sloppy this crime was. The attacker had left biological evidence. The attack also might've been noisy which could have attracted attention, they immediately began canvassing for witnesses. Meanwhile, Christie's family, living a two-hour drive away, had continued to worry ever since getting Principal Goodman's call looking for her. Christie's younger brother Vince had already joined his parents for the holidays. He recounts what happened next.
4: We tried continually calling to see if we could get a response at her apartment, and eventually someone picked up in the In her apartment and identified themselves as a law enforcement, and that she had passed. There had been an accident, she had passed.
0: And what was your initial thought about what had happened?
4: No idea. No idea. We got nothing. Did she fall? I mean, what happened? They asked that we, you know, come down to Lancaster to meet with them. And what was that drive like? Horrible. Longest drive ever. There was no way to communicate with anybody, and at this point, you're you're in a car for two hours driving down there, wondering what in the world could have happened.
0: Vince and his family were directed to the police station, where they were given the gut-wrenching news that Christy had been murdered.
4: Couldn't understand it, couldn't grasp, like, what are you talking about? Like, how did this happen? She was very happy. Kind of a person who, you know, walked into a room and she would light the room up. I don't know an enemy that she had. We knew her, we knew what she did, and I mean this just this, this doesn't make sense.
0: The news sends shockwaves through the school staff as well.
3: Was there any thought to in times like these, you want people want to be together.
5: We pulled everybody into the library. And the superintendent of schools addressed the whole staff, told them what happened. Everybody was crying and hugging. And I mean, you couldn't contain the feelings. There was emotions from, you know, what happened to our colleague, what happened to our friend. And there were suspicions. I mean, I was a suspect, you know, because I found Christy. Did they put you in a room, like, with a light? Oh, yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. So they tried to break you?
5: Oh, no question about it. I was interviewed for about eight hours by three different teams of uh, detectives, and then they wanted to polygraph me. And I said, go ahead, hook me up. And I've got nothing to hide. And they polygraphed me.
3: Even though DNA was left at the scene, The small police department wasn't yet equipped to process DNA quickly, and it would be another six years before the National DNA Database, CODIS, would exist.
0: Witness statements were compiled. In this case, Principal Goodman had a solid alibi. He was at school from 7 a.m. until after Christie's time of death. 7 a.m. is when Christie's roommate, Mary, last saw her alive before leaving for work. And this is a point that should be stressed. If Christy was alive at 7 a.m., that means the murder happened during the daytime in a large residential complex when people were likely heading out for work. Chris Erb told us what else police learned.
7: One of the neighbors was walking their dog. She wasn't wearing her glasses at the time, so her vision was not clear. She sees what she believed to be a white male In the parking lot across the street from her townhouse, and then he's walking towards the apartment, towards Christie's front door, I'm around 715 to
3: 720. That neighbor was joined by a fellow
7: resident. As they're in the parking lot, they both heard what they thought was a, like a blood-curdling kind of scream coming from the direction of Christie's apartment. They did not report that to the police. Some neighbors, after the fact in the canvas said, hey, we saw this white or silver smaller vehicle parked facing the wrong direction, on the curb, directly in front of her house at 6.30 that morning.
3: The vehicle description would eventually be reported as possibly a Dodge Shadow, a Dodge Daytona, or a Toyota Celica. The man, he was white, tall, athletic, with sandy blonde or light brown hair.
0: If that, in fact, was the killer's car, Parking right in front of Christy's apartment seems like he didn't care if he was seen. He also seemed to know Christy's schedule. In the up-close nature of the crime, it prompts authorities to declare two days later that Christy likely knew her
1: killer. Merrick's body was found in her apartment at the Greenfield Estates by the principal of Roartstown Elementary School, where she was a sixth-grade teacher.
5: Based upon information which appears to be reliable, we are investigating this matter on the assumption that Miss Merrick was not, and I'll repeat that, was not selected at random.
0: Christie's brother Vince agreed.
4: My gut feeling was it was somebody she knew the whole time. I never swayed on that. She was always very cautious. I mean, I'd ring the doorbell and she'd ask who it was and make sure she knew it was me before she let me in. Somebody wouldn't have got into that condominium unless she knew the person, just because of how she was insecure and cautious about that.
3: The question was, who in Christie's circle could have had such anger toward her that he wanted her dead? It turns out, there was a leading suspect right away, a person that Christy had kept a secret from her family.
4: We didn't know she was in a relationship. The gentleman was older. We didn't expect that. And we just didn't know anything about it.
0: Christie's family was shocked to learn that she had been dating a man named Kenneth, who was 20 years her senior. And they'd been together for five years. And he was married. But this was not a secret amongst Christy's friends. One of her college friends, Kim Alpert, says it was common knowledge.
8: We all knew that. Everybody just assumed it was him when things first happened. I was just getting that feeling like it probably wasn't going to last much longer or it was on its way out.
0: Kim's feeling was correct. The investigation revealed that Kenneth's wife had been living in Virginia and that they had a quote-unquote commuter marriage. But Kenneth had just lost his job and was eyeing a move to reunite with her. And that, understandably, put his relationship with Christy on the outs. Here's Chris Erb.
7: Was actually that Friday or Saturday before this happened is when she cut it off with him. She said, "Look, you, you can't have it both ways here. It's one or the other," and she ended the relationship that weekend.
3: Kenneth was immediately brought in for questioning, but hopes for an open and shut case quickly disappeared, as Vince would soon find out.
4: He had an alibi. He was in Virginia at the Department of Motor Vehicles at 7:30 a.m.
0: Authorities were back to square one. Despite the physical evidence, they had no clear leads and no way of knowing just how long the path to solving this crime would prove to be. And that when it finally was solved, the answer to who took Christie's life would shock everyone involved.
3: In 1992, Christy Marek's family was blindsided by her horrific murder. They had no idea who would have wanted to kill her, and in such a brutal way.
0: With no obvious suspects, investigators combed through the crime scene, trying to come up with a theory of what happened. One of the big questions was the cutting board, which was found next to Christy. Detective Chris Erb explains.
7: I'm thinking, did she see this coming and make a dash for the kitchen and use that as a weapon to fend off her assailant? Maybe the perpetrator was not expecting to be resisted. Did he then grab it and use it as a weapon on her to take further control? Because he already had control, He's doing the sexual assaults. And in the strangulation, the ligature strangulation, we believe to be her own sweater. Her sweater had like a V-neck on it and the stitching where the v-neck is in the sweater was ripped. So similar to like maybe a garrote.
3: Surprisingly, the assailant appeared to have entered Christie's home without bringing a weapon with him. But the manner of death suggested a very personal attack. Whatever the motive, it seems luck played a primary role in his initial escape. Luck that investigators hoped would soon run out, thanks to the DNA he left behind.
7: East Lampier Township was assisted by the Pennsylvania State Police actually for the processing the crime scene. There was some semen on the carpet under her body, and they physically cut out the carpet and they secured that. There were multiple areas on and in her person that were swabbed, it was noted in the autopsy that is doing the sexual assaults in the strangulation, both from the front and the back. So was he repeatedly strangling her, sexually assaulting her, then flipping her over and doing the same thing? One could assume that. But having that physical evidence didn't mean an identification would be easy. Back in those days, the only way you could compare DNA to somebody else is if you had a suspect and you got DNA from that other person, then you could compare them.
0: Police continued to ask the public for leads about anyone Christie might have known who would have done this to her. They interviewed people in the apartment complex, conducted polygraphs, and collected blood samples from those who agreed. But as the days ticked by without any answers, Kim and other friends of Christie grew increasingly nervous.
8: I always thought it was somebody she knew, because I couldn't imagine somebody random being so brutal. It had to take a lot of anger to do what this person had done. You're like, is it safe to go hang out with anybody? To go out anywhere with some of the, the people you're used to hanging out with?
3: East Lampeter police remained on the lookout for the suspect vehicle, along with a muscular white man. In the following days, they stopped cars that were going
7: through the neighborhood there so that they could glean information on who had daily travels throughout that area. They checked records on, you know, who owns a silver Dodge Daytona or a white Toyota Celica
3: in Lancaster County. So they tried to pull all those resources that they could. The only lead police found actually came from Christie's boyfriend, Kenneth, and one of Christie's former roommates who had since moved out. Apparently, in the months before the murder, they had encountered a peeping Tom outside their window.
7: He had dark hair. He is of a medium build and somewhere between 5'9 and 5'11 in height. So a very vague description, but there were more than one peeping Tom incidents.
0: A peeping Tom suggests the culprit could have been stalking Christie. To understand how this peeping incident had unfolded, we traveled to Lancaster, where Detective Erb took us to Christie's former townhome.
8: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.
1: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
8: Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked, phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to StoryWorth.com slash Unraveled. That's StoryWorth.com slash Unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase.
0: Hi, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for meeting me. You're welcome. So, this is Christie's complex.
7: Yes, this is uh, this is where everything happened. This is her apartment over here, townhouse.
0: Seeing Christie's apartment in person, two things struck me right away. One, it looks exactly the way it did back in 1992, based on the photos I've seen. You'd never know that something horrible happened here. And two, her apartment is right out in the open. It faces a well-traveled street, and it's part of a huge complex. The idea that someone thought they could stalk this place and launch an attack here without getting caught is hard to comprehend.
7: To the left of the door with this first floor is where that evening her boyfriend came to, to visit. Behind those bushes, he saw a peeping Tom looking in that window, and one of her roommates gave chase around the backside of the building and in the direction behind this farm area, between the farm and the townhomes here in this row.
0: So as far as targeting Christy is concerned, do you think a perpetrator would pick not only her but just this unit is also pretty uniquely positioned?
7: It is, her unit is, is obviously on the end the previous peeping incident was further up the complex here. So if it was the same person, which we feel it was, they could conduct their own surveillance, if you will.
0: I asked Chris about the suspicious car parked outside of Christie's place on the morning of her murder. So it's one of these spaces where the white or silver car was right. spotted? Right,
7: right. Her vehicle was parked in this first parking space over here in the parking lot. And we feel that she was taking her Christmas packages for her students and other faculty staff in and out of the apartment door, walking across the sidewalk to the car and back. And
3: the physical altercation took place right inside that door. The nature of the attack initially had many authorities thinking this was a personal assault by someone Christie knew. But is it possible that a stranger had targeted her, and had studied her morning routine, timing his attack for when she was leaving, then taking her by surprise at the door? If so, this escalation from peeping Tom to murderer offers up a chilling possibility. This could be the development of a serial offender, who could already be eyeing his next target. If so, finding him became even more urgent.
0: With no leads panning out, Vince and his family were also feeling desperate for answers. By April of the following year, they announced a $10,000 award for information leading to Christie's killer.
4: We started to talk to law enforcement and we were like, you know, we're just, we're getting nowhere here. Like, where do we go next? Like, you know, do you think this is gonna be something that's viable? And, you know, obviously it was, yeah, why wouldn't we?
3: The monetary incentive generated a wave of new tips. But as investigators followed up on each one, each one fell through.
0: Eight months after the murder, with fears of the case going cold for good, local authorities enlisted the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit to build a suspect profile. Before we tell you what they said, we want to make sure you appreciate how big of a step this was.
3: The Behavioral Science Unit was created in 1972 just as the so-called golden age of serial killers was getting underway, with murderers like John Wayne Gacy, son of Sam, and Ted Bundy becoming chillingly common. In the 70s, tracking these monsters down was an even bigger challenge than it is today.
0: There was no DNA database, no modern surveillance equipment, no cell phone tracking. So, law enforcement turned to the burgeoning discipline known as profiling.
3: FBI agents John Douglas and Robert Ressler interviewed dozens of serial murderers to develop theories and to set up categories of offenders. And profiling has remained a part of the investigative landscape ever since. Profilers are typically used in the most extreme cases, where conventional gathering of evidence has proven insufficient.
0: This approach has been immortalized in movies like Silence of the Lambs and shows like Mindhunter, which portray profilers as super sleuths able to solve the most inscrutable mysteries that no one else can crack. Serial killers had met their match.
3: But how accurate is this portrayal? How does profiling stand up against the reality of so many unresolved sexual homicides?
0: Christine Wilson, a current assistant district attorney who was a high school senior at the time of Christie's killing, would later learn about the profile developed by the FBI. Although it hasn't been released publicly, she was able to tell us what the profile determined.
6: One of the things that the FBI profile did say was that this was probably a disorganized killer and likely a first-time killer, not someone that had killed before.
3: Disorganized means that the killer probably didn't plan the specifics of this attack, as indicated by his reckless approach and improvised weapons. And while the FBI felt he may have committed date rape before, this was likely his first homicide. But they said something else about the suspect's personality. Here's Chris Erb. The person was more of a loner. They didn't
7: like to be out in the public or draw attention to themselves.
0: The idea of a reclusive, antisocial murderer is common in popular culture, especially in the serial killer realm. And even though many serial killers don't fit that mold, it is one of the archetypes sexual predatory murders were also commonly believed to be telltale signs of a serial killer so the pressure to find this individual
3: was immense investigators followed up on suspects that appeared to align with the FBI's assessment but despite having this profile in hand the offender was still not identified
4: the days went into months and then months went into years it just it was it was extremely it was hard
3: Investigators conducted more than 1,500 interviews over those first three years, based on the profile and other tips, and ruled out more than 60 men. But the killer still eluded them. The case went cold for years.
4: I moved out of the area because my career took me to a different part of the state. Did I still keep in touch with the investigators? Yes, but I knew at a point that it wasn't being investigated as closely as it was for those first couple years. In
0: 1998, the National DNA Index System first went live. And over the next few years, state and local labs added their collected samples to it. But none of the files matched the DNA from
3: Christie's killer. Whoever this man was, he had apparently avoided leaving his DNA at any other crimes, at least so far. So this begs the question, Had he actually continued killing and simply gotten better at not leaving anything behind? If so, there was still a chance he could be seen by a witness or caught by other means. But waiting for him to make a mistake was not the ideal strategy. The emotional toll was hard on Christie's family. And as the 10-year anniversary of her murder approached, her mother began succumbing to cancer.
4: She wished, she pleaded, you know, hopefully that somebody would come out. And I told her, I said, listen, this is something I'll never let go. She unfortunately ends up passing away without answers. I still think that, you know, she, she passed of a broken heart. I mean, this one, it wore on her every day.
0: Vince made good on his word, refusing to let his sister's murder be forgotten. In 2007, 15 years after Christie was killed, Vince connected with another family that had faced a similar tragedy in Lancaster. In 1975, the body of 19-year-old Lindy Sue Beekler was found dead in her apartment, stabbed 19 times. It was not connected to Christie's case, but it was also never solved.
3: Together, the families funded a billboard along a local highway asking for leads in either murder.
4: I had a good friend of mine who was a graphic art designer who developed the billboard and we came up with a great idea and worked with a local company who, you know, obviously put it in the location which they thought would be very beneficial to us to get ext- a lot of views, which I think it did. We actually set up a, um, a website so there was information that came in that we could turn over to law enforcement and they could follow up on.
0: What was it like to drive by that and see that all the time?
4: I would just think that, you know, if somebody's seeing that this is gonna spark something, this will really help us get this. But unfortunately, a lot of tips, but nothing ever came out of it.
0: Despite Vince's efforts, it would be nearly another decade before the case gained any momentum. And it came from Detective Herb.
7: I was recruited by the DA in Lancaster County in 2015 to come and work for his office as a criminal investigator. When I interviewed for this job, I specifically asked if I could work on this case. It was, if not the biggest unsolved case, one of the biggest unsolved cases in in the history of this county, actually.
3: Already working on this case was Christine Wilson, the high school senior at the time of the murder who was now a prosecutor with the district attorney's office.
6: I started working on the Christy Murak case in 2012. It was a case that I really wanted to work on, really just to give it a second look, another set of eyes on the case, if you will.
3: What was it like when you first saw the crime scene photos?
6: It was absolutely devastating to see what Christy had gone through and the last minutes of of her life, what they must have been like and just the thought of hoping that she didn't suffer. The pictures were very
0: devastating. Chris Erb and Christine Wilson went through the boxes of files and evidence, learning all the details of the case.
7: There were thousands and thousands of pages in these reports. I was reading that day in and day out for months on end taking notes along the way and thinking of anything that needs to be worked on or looked at again. The investigator for me, Slam Peter, he kept a picture, a photograph of Christie at his desk every day and he gave me that picture. And I I kept that at my desk. And I, I looked at that every day as did everybody who
3: came in my workspace. The more they studied the huge case file, the more they realized they might need outside help to generate new leads. In 2016, Chris attended a cold case symposium in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, and he learned of a company offering an intriguing new approach to DNA evidence. We're like, what exactly
7: is that? Hey, we need to look at this.
0: After more than two decades, Detective Chris Erb was about to find out who killed Christy Murak. In 2016, 24 years after Christy Marak was murdered, Detective Chris Erb found a revolutionary new approach to the case at a symposium.
7: It was a day-long seminar with multiple vendors, and one of the folks there was speaking about Parabon, which was this new group offering these new phenotyping services based on DNA. Phenotyping is, they take DNA extract, they process it and they analyze it. They have a certain computer model that they feed this DNA information into and it creates a composite sketch of your suspect at the age of approximately 25. Eye color, hair color, skin tone, and they also have uh, software that allows them to either increase the age or decrease the age
3: of the person from age 25. This company, Parabon, was offering to create a modern-day portrait of Christie's killer based on the suspect's DNA, basically like a DNA-driven sketch artist. This technique couldn't predict things like body mass or hairstyle or age, but just the prospect of seeing what the murderer might look like breathed new life into Christie's case. We first
7: consulted with Parabon in its phenotyping process. November 21st, 2016. We asked to go out 20 years and 30 years. So it was age 25, age 45, and age 55. We got our results report back, I believe it was in May of 2017. It automatically ruled out anybody with blonde hair. It ruled out anybody with blue eyes. It ruled out anybody who was very dark complected. The science told us we could eliminate people from our list that we had made on our review of people that we should be looking at here.
0: The results contradicted the original eyewitness testimonies that said the suspect had sandy blonde hair. Authorities were still looking for a Caucasian, but one with darker hair and darker eyes. But would this lead be enough? Looking at the picture, you see a plain-faced man with short, dark hair. Some mild cheek dimples. Nothing that would make this killer stand out in a crowd.
7: There were people that resembled that sketch. And we knew we had to collect a sample to have them
3: have their DNA tested. So we were after them. If you request a DNA sample from a suspect you are eyeing, you risk tipping off the guilty party. So instead, investigators follow the suspects who look like the composite, and waited for them to discard something with their DNA on it, like a cup or a straw. It was days
7: and nights. I mean, we spent countless hours, off hours. I mean, there's there's some days that we worked straight through <laughs> trying to collect something, and it was a little discouraging when it didn't work out. And it was a lot discouraging.
0: Christie's brother Vince tried to keep the faith, hoping that investigators' efforts would pay off.
4: Looking at a face and I'm like, I mean, it could look like a thousand people that I don't even know. But the fact that they they had something that was definitive and concrete, this to me felt like was gonna be the big break that we needed in this case. Then months started to go by, like, here we go.
3: Authorities eventually decided to go public with the profile drawing. Early in November of
7: 2017, we had posters made up we had the press release. How'd that go? We got probably about a hundred tips that came in. We were working on them for the next few months.
0: Unfortunately, the leads began to fizzle and hope faded again. Phenotyping a composite sketch is an inexact science and pictures generated are often generic in nature. But another possible breakthrough is brewing on the other side of the country.
3: In California, authorities had just honed in on the infamous Golden State Killer. From the mid-70s to the mid-80s, he committed at least 13 murders and 50 rapes. He was actually known by a variety of names, because authorities didn't realize these crime waves were the work of one person. But they eventually put the pieces together thanks to DNA.
0: Genetic genealogy uses DNA to identify someone based on a partial match with a family member. Then reconstructing the family tree.
3: And with the rise of low-cost genealogy services like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, millions of people were having their DNA sequenced. Those two databases were closed to outside searches. But intrepid users could upload their test results from these sites to an open platform called GEDmatch, which enabled even more comparisons that connected even more people. And that had huge implications for law enforcement.
7: Somebody works with databases, with DNA databases, and they try to make a genetic genealogy link to your unknown person to somebody in a known database. It is an invaluable tool, investigatively.
0: Parabon had the DNA of Christy Marek's killer that they used to make the digital sketch. And now they realized they could upload that DNA into GEDmatch, and possibly find the killer the same way GSK was found.
7: We were literally at a stalemate after we went through and exhausted all leads from that press release. When Parabon called us about the genetic genealogy analysis that can be performed.
6: We immediately said that it was something that we wanted to pursue. I had to uh, go to my boss at the time to ask for approval, and we have to get the funds together and figure out the budget. The genetic genealogy was about an additional 2,500 to to 3,000.
7: So we did that, and they said, now we'll probably get an answer in about 45 days. I said, okay. Well, they called us back in four days and said, we have a significant match. I was kind of in shock. Like, are you serious? You really have somebody that they said, look, we have a very significant reading and we feel we've identified your killer's mother. Now, when they tell you that, I was on the edge of my seat. I was very excited. I'm like, okay, who is it? Who is it?
0: Parabon gave them the suspect's name and it immediately caught them by surprise.
6: It was very shocking because of this individual and who he was in the community. It was somebody that was well-known in our community.
3: Three things jumped out right away about this individual that defied expectations. The first is that he didn't appear to have any connection to Christy Merak, upending the initial thoughts of investigators. The second is that he didn't appear to have ever committed any other crime, before or since that horrific murder. He seems to have gone on living a normal, happy life as a regular member of society.
0: The third thing goes back to the FBI profile that was generated in the wake of the murder. They concluded that the killer was a reserved type who didn't like being in the spotlight, but the name suspect was the opposite of that. He was a public individual, complete with a stage name, who thrived on publicity and attention, if this was indeed the killer, then he'd been walking free in Lancaster for 26 years, right under everyone's nose. This season on Unraveled, Once a Killer.
7: When she first told me who it was, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me.
0: Did profiling just not account for this species of of killer?
5: I'm thinking, There's a whole different type of person out there that hadn't been considered before.
1: It dawned on me, he did this this morning, and he slept with me that night. This is unbelievable. How do you think they got it so wrong?
9: You have to understand, profiling itself
7: is not a science. These one-offs render some of the most valuable tools to law enforcement moot.
5: This is the most powerful tool that's ever came along since DNA itself.
2: Genetic genealogy revealed that I was related to a murderer.
5: Your next door neighbor could be the nicest person in the world, but he may have killed somebody somewhere
9: sometime.
3: These people are out there, able to to function and live a life. That is what galls me. And how many one-and-done
0: killers do you think could be walking free at any given moment?
4: Thousands.
3: Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, Jeff Kuntz, and myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing is by Eric Smith, Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for episode two next week wherever you get your podcasts. And it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy. Thank you for listening for your support.